Welcome to Listening with Leaders. I'm Doug Noll, lawyer turned peacemaker. I teach executive leaders how to listen to emotions rather than words so that they can become the leaders everyone wants to follow. And I teach those same leaders how to be authentically present, available, and connected to their families, despite being insanely busy. I have learned that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Learning how to listen to emotions is, in my experience, the foundational skill of life. Stick around to the end of the show, and I'll reveal how you can be on our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. So let's get started. Roger Spitz, welcome to the show. You are the founder and the chair of the Disruptive Futures Institute, which can be found at disruptivefutures.org. Um, you're doing some really fascinating work. Uh, so thank you for taking out time from your busy day to be with us today. Well, it's my pleasure, Doug. Thanks for having me on the Listen with Leaders. And it's always a pleasure to exchange on these uh, important topics. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and what led you to the Disruptive Futures Institute? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a funny story. I guess we all think we're unique, and maybe some of us might even be. So I don't know. But uh, um, I'm originally born in South Africa. I've lived in a lot of different countries. Um, and spent most of my professional career in London with a pretty um, vanilla career for places like London and New York, which is in investment banking. So I was there for 20 years. I was global head of M&A advising clients uh, for one of the large European banks based in London, focusing on technology. So always advising C-suite, shareholders, boards on their most strategic deals. And that was great. And, you know, I thought at the time that it was quite forward-looking and quite strategic. And uh, six or seven years ago, our CEO at the time and um, <clears throat> and the sort of company wanted to reinforce the M&A activities in San Francisco and asked me to sort of spend more time here and scale those up. So I moved six, seven years ago to San Francisco. And on arriving, I kind of promised myself that I would kind of explore um, and go down the rabbit hole of some interest I had around for want of a better word, disruption, although it's, we'll come to it, it's not disruption in the way the Silicon Valley uses it, but really nonlinear change. You know, what is unpredictability? What is change? Um, and that rabbit hole, long story short, led me to really finding futures and foresight, a very uh, pertinent umbrella to think about change. And I decided to professionalize that. Uh, did a lot of courses, did a lot of things around complexity, systems thinking, uh, even design thinking, innovation, understanding better AI technology, exponential technologies, and really wanted to see how all those connected. And at some point, I felt that the problems which were relevant to our clients, to the world, to business for decades, I felt that we were in a new kind of paradigm shifts and that they were different filters for which we should look at the reality of the world as nonlinear, complex, and unpredictable. And so today I kind of, you know, so a few years ago, I took the, the decision to, to move from investment banking and to professionalize futures and foresight, to write a book, to take on board positions. I still have a, um, some activities which are kind of investment related. I'm, you know, a partner on a venture capital uh, fund, looking at the future of mobility. But effectively, I set up the Disruptive Futures Institute as an organization to help capacity building for futures intelligence, resilience, and really learning the language of uncertainty and disruption. My assumption is really that the world is, is as I mentioned, complex, nonlinear, 
unpredictable. And so what, what does that mean if that is correct? And we believe it is. Um, and how do you deal with uh, um, making sense of that world and how best to respond to the different features of that world, which is not the way our governance systems, our incentives, nor our education systems are cabled. So, so we live in we live in a a, a a a time when technology is accelerating change at a rapid pace. But there have been other times in the past where there's been severe disruption. I mean, I'm thinking about when um, automobiles were first horseless carriages were first introduced in the late 19th century and early 20th century and were extremely yeah. disruptive. Um, yeah. I mean, that was a, that was the, that was the, probably the one industry that changed the world the most at that time as people moved sure. arms into industrial production and entire industries, carriage making and buggy whips, you know, wiped out yeah. in a number of years. Um, are there parallels that we draw from, the the history of the past that that we look at today, or are we in a completely different kind of environment? Yeah, no. Listen, it's it's a very good point. Two two or three very good points you you mentioned just there in that, that those short comments. I mean, the first one is um, we do very much look at the history. In fact, one of the common misconceptions of of futurists and foresight is that we try and predict the future. Actually, we try and understand. Um, the features of the future and prepare for any possible futures and imagine any possible futures. And we very much look um, as far back as possible to understand if there are any patterns and the elements that can help us make sense of um, the signals that we're seeing and how they might evolve. Um, and you're absolutely right. You know, disruption is not new. The, you know, I think 3,600 years ago, the first wheel was invented that was pretty amazing and and very disruptive and every day the the disruptions in that and some of which are life-changing like you mentioned um, automotive and, and that washing machines you know many things um not to mention new drugs and medical and medicine and that um <clears throat> and i think one of the things that we focus on is is a new reframing of of disruption so if i take the possible ways of looking at disruption. And this is our filters. It doesn't mean they're correct or universally um, recognized. But I kind of see creative disruption as disruptive 1.0. It's a Joseph Schumpeter. It's slightly institutional or macroeconomic. You know, after certain big historic events, world wars or what have you, um, 1940s, 1950s, Europe rebuilds, a lot of the world rebuilds. And with that, this kind of innovation, some things go, some things come. It's creative destruction. There's a lot that's being destroyed and disrupted, but it also creates new things, some which are not necessarily positive, um, but some which are positive in terms of innovations which help society, healthcare, etc. Um, and then disruption 2.0 is really, for us, Clayton Christensen's perception and description of disruption. It's really what Silicon Valley embraces. It's often product related or technology related. It's a specific discrete innovation and it's replicable. You can define it, you can recognize it, you can isolate it. You can attach features to it, which are um, controllable and comprehensible where you sort of say, okay, this case is disruption, disruptive innovation in Clayton Christensen's terminology. So Netflix is but Uber isn't. So it really is a way which is kind of 
measurable, quantifiable, identifiable, replicable, scalable, etc. And we, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it, in reading your material on your website, it looks to me like you're you're putting together a toolbox for people in education and business and just ordinary people, a, a toolbox to try to understand the rapidity of change and how to deal with that. Yeah, it's the rapidity and it's the constant element of it. And in a sense, what I've just described around what we call disruption 2.0, disruptive innovation, I think has been covered for decades by people who are very well-versed in these things and there's some extraordinary books and tools or to think about innovation or disruptive innovation in the kind of technology, product, Silicon Valley sense. I think where the world is struggling a little bit more is what we call systemic disruption and disruption 3.0. And that's for which we have a tool toolbox. And the, the elements about that is that it's nonlinear. So small changes can create very significant outcomes, both positive and negative, incidentally. Um, it's not predictable. It's systemic. So there are many drivers of change. It's not something like, you know, disruptive innovation for Clayton Christensen, which is specific. This company or product was innovated in a particular way. It's really affects everything. And it's not just technology related. You can't determine the cause and effect ex ante. So you can't just rely on experts, the unknown unknowns. And so the different modes of emergence of, of sense-making and responses. And that's where, you know, even before the pandemic, but the pandemic kind of proved the point, you see that society and humanity is, is unprepared to understand the real nature of this complex world I described, which is completely unpredictable. The velocity of change and the number of different impacts are huge. And so when you look at events that could be isolated, Nothing is. You see, with the speed with which, you know, from information and fake news, how it affects politics, how politics affects governance, how it affects healthcare, if people are not willing to um, take vaccines, you know, to be vaccinated, how it affects education if people are polarized, how technology plays a huge factor in that, but other societal things. And then you see AI, which is technology, but it's quite specific because it, it has an impact on decision-making, and then climate. And all of these play on each other, are constantly interacting and self-reinforcing, and because it's nonlinear and complex, can be amplified. And so that's where that systemic disruption, where disruption is a constant, is a particular way of, of thinking. It's not like, oh, okay, there was a crash in 2008 or there was a COVID pandemic. And then two years later, we go back to normal. That disruption is systemic. And that's what the world is not prepared for because wow. it's only now that even, you know, Yellen and the Fed will sort of say, yeah, we got it wrong. We thought the inflation was controllable. It isn't, it's out of control. And then, and then everything plays a kind of domino effect, but worse than a domino effect is domino is linear. It's tall and then it falls straight. Whereas non-linear and complex means that you don't actually know how things might move and to what extent. So how do you how do you engage in decision making in that kind of an environment where where there's predictability is difficult and it's non-linear? Yeah. So that's that's exactly why I became fascinated with um with foresight and futures. And that's why the Institute, basically, we've just published a lot of, um, we just published a guidebook around precisely that question. How do you make sense of the world and make decisions 
in an environment which is unpredictable um, uncertain and complex. And effectively, the short answer is really to, to think about it like a futurist does, as opposed to strategy. In other words, you accept um, with humility the limits of what we know. We accept that there are many things that are unknown unknowns where we can't rely on experts, not because we don't believe in science or experts, but because there aren't answers to, to everything at a certain point in time. You need different modes, which are more trial and error, discovery, experiential, um, emergent modes of evaluating a situation and responding to them. And you need to prepare for many different possible outcomes. So, you know, the pandemic is a good example. You save a few billion dollars for 1% probability of a pandemic, but then you save, you, you waste trillions when that event happens. Or you do like Yellen and the Fed and the rest of the world, which is, you know, looks like inflation should be low and should be okay. And if it isn't, it's controllable. Well, that assumption costs a lot. The reality is that you should be thinking in the world in terms of multiple possible futures, preparing and building resilience and adaptability instead of relying on assumptions, which the yeah. cost of relying on those assumptions is going through the roof because uncertainty is inversely correlated to predictability. Right. So it's a, so a lot of this is is doing a lot of the imaginative thinking, a lot of what ifs. Exactly. And trying to think outside the box. Uh, because where people get stuck, they get stuck in their in their normal strategic decision making and they've got guardrails around what they think and they're missing everything that's outside the guardrails. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So it's it's different phases, right? You're spot on. It's one is absolutely the what if and thinking outside of the box. But two is the decision-making of what is the response you might have in relation to those possibilities. And so you build resilience okay, so in case something happens. And that's where there's the what-if imagination you mentioned, but then there's what do people actually do with it for right. capacity building for that resilience. And, and I guess you have to make a decision, especially if you're in business, how much capital do I employ for a what if and and then and what are the signals i'm looking for so that i can see it early enough to be able to make the shift exactly whatever i have to do you know this sounds a lot like how our brains actually function because our brains are predictive machines and they're constantly our brains are constantly predicting what's going to happen in the next moment and it gets pretty good with experience but if something happens that it didn't predict that's when we get we get uh cognitive dissonance and and this is sort of that process writ large as I'm understanding it. Really interesting. Totally, totally. And I know you've, you've taught courses on similar topics from right. your own vantage point on decision-making and uncertainty and that. And that's completely it. The, the only thing I would, I would add to that is that I believe that while the world has always been complex and unpredictable, you could get away and rely on the assumptions of some predictability for businesses, for economies, for governments. Probably, from time, I was going to say that's probably because the velocity of change was a little slower. Exactly. And we change. We change. Everything's changing, but we're all changing together, so it looks like it's static. But yeah. In an environment, I think, where it's where it's changing so fast, the velocity is so great that we're not able to change as quickly. And so now we feel like we're in an env in that volatile, uncertain environment that you were talking about. Now exactly. And the way they intersect, play on each other more. So the more things, 
people are connected, the more computers are connected, the more complex systems become, the more the less prepared the world is for, for these things, these shocks are, are greater. So indeed, it's not that things have changed, but in 2000, the debt crisis, or 2001, the technology crisis, or 2008, the bank, Wall Street, whatever, to the pandemic, all of these, if you take them in an isolated way, the world sort of gets a big hit and they weren't prepared and, oh, well, never mind. And then things get pretty much back to normal for a lot of people and organizations. I think the problem now is that the cost of relying on those assumptions is greater. And the way things are playing each other as systemic disruption, no longer just technology or whatever, is greater. What does it take with social media and polarization and a number of other factors we could spend hours discussing for polarized society to move to, to civil unrest or, or what have you. It can happen with very little because the speed with which things happen. So I'm, I try to avoid the bullshit bingo of exponential technology and all this for whether it's good or bad, just as a concept. But what I do believe is that you can't ignore the interconnectedness intersecting um, velocity trajectory of the multiplicity of factors which themselves play on each other and become self-reinforcing and in a complex environment that's non-linear and therefore the outcomes can be huge so indeed if you're a company to come back or an organization and you're running your models and you say oh, this is just one percent risk this is the x percent risk oh it's unlikely the issue is that a lot of these things are materializing and the costs of not preparing for them and building resiliency can literally be existential at the level of humanity, climate or other things, nuclear, at the level of a company, an organization or country. And so that's where the cost of relying on those assumptions, if it's existential, it's exactly what the term means. There's right. a risk of potentially no longer existing at different levels should you not kind of have the right resiliency and decisions. So, but the, the the challenge I see is that for for many people, especially people who are not strong critical thinkers, this is overwhelming. Yeah, it's it's overwhelming, and it's also just simply not the way we're cabled. We're cabled. Right. We don't think exponentially. So, to your point, even with experience, it's no longer kind of a cycle or replication of oh, this happened in the past. It's always worked for the past twenty years. We've always been the leader. We've always got away with it. Um, we're not cabled for that. So you're right. You need a new way of thinking. And coming back to the starting point, yeah. the reason I'm passionate about that and moved away from slightly more kind of, you know, conventional areas of business or, or, or activity is precisely because even before the pandemic, I had a strong sense that it was essential to rethink education, leadership, um, governance, systems, incentives, decision making. And so almost the entire remit of the Disruptive Futures Institute is to support society, individuals, organizations, um, policymakers, understand the true nature of the world and understand the different responses and how to build capacity for what is a very different way of, of, of thinking. How is your message being received out there in the, in the world of influence? To be honest, we've been overwhelmed with the with the interest um we've used you know limited pr we've pretty much an organization built from scratch quite recently within the past five years um i come from a background where although i've been working on visible and high profile things myself i've been stealth because in m a in the context of investment banking 
everything you do is confidential. You can't get involved in the public arena much. It's pretty much stealth. Um, but when the pandemic, when I, before the pandemic, people were finding what I was doing a little bit esoteric or cute or, you know, good for him kind of thing. When the pandemic hit and then more recent geopolitical events, suddenly the interest started becoming very significant from academic organizations to organizations like NASA to um, corporate startup, venture capital. I mean, it's been very broad and very kind of, um, um, the, I mean, the short answer is there's a very strong interest and recognition now that the way of looking at the world for the past few decades and deciding and driving strategy and that is is, is not working. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> what gives you hope for the future? I mean, my hope for the future is that um, really to, 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 to result in systemic transformation, you need that capacity building and resilience. And to get that, it's going to be a combination of incentives. Incentives determine outcomes, right? To, to quote Munger. Um, so you need to change the incentives. You need to change the governance systems and decision-making. And you need the right kind of education and, and worldviews and assumptions and that. So it's, <laughs> it's not easy. But my, <laughs> it's, no, it's correct. But ultimately, it doesn't mean that you have to change it overnight and completely from useless to perfect but unless you're hitting at the different levers of change that are effective in complex systems you know to use Donald Meadows hierarchy of of right. effective levers um unless you're hitting those levers which touch you know worldviews assumptions education incentives um governance systems structures and you kind of have feedback loops to sort of see what's working and not working and evolve um, ultimately, it's 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 not going to be effective. And so, to answer your question, what do I hope for the future? Is that people focus on capacity building and resilience, and understand what it entails for systemic change, and and that includes a lot of things which are not easy to to address unless people are kind of intent on doing so. You know, yeah, there are a lot levels. of there are a lot of oxes that get gored in this process. So there's going to be a lot of resistance. I mean, a lot of people don't want to see the change. They want to stick their heads in the sand. Yeah, no, no, that's right. And, uh, you know, but if there's a nuclear bomb that goes off and enough of it in nuclear war, that might be the end of humanity. Right. If uh, we're not thoughtful with AI, I don't believe in the crazy scenarios of AI killing humans and that, but I do believe that we're delegating more and more decision-making to AI and enable ourselves to upgrade our decision-making capabilities. So the more all of that happens, not to mention climate, if Earth becomes inhabitable, right. these are literally existential considerations. Um, and at the level of a company, for companies and organizations that don't prepare, that nonlinear amplification of, of outcomes can also mean both the opportunities overnight and open AI can become one of the most valuable companies in the world, but overnight, one of the most established leaders can disappear pretty much. So unless the world and society appreciate this, this that one needs to think differently and address these things, the existential risks at the level of humanity, the world individual organizations or individual people for their future careers. So I personally um, agree there's a big risk of the, the ostrich and the, the, the keeping the head in the sand and, and movies like Don't Look Up, um, you know, show that very well. But the cost is, is increasing for, for that behavior and more and more people are starting to realize it. So my, my hope is that ultimately 
there are enough people organizations that kind of realize that the alternative options are, are kind of limited um then to kind of think about these things and hopefully address them and, in ways. and it may be um evolutionary in other words the companies and institutions that are not able to adapt to this velocity of change are going to they're going to die and and new institutions and new organizations will supplant them that we that we don't even know about yet i mean absolutely and the question is whether that happens at the scale of humanity and the world, because the right. same can be said about the entire humanity. There's no guarantee that humanity continues to exist. There, there are a lot of events um, that are literally existential, where you know there's a there's a clock that's being monitored for for the risk, and we're ten seconds off, and many different. You know, I spend a lot of time. I'm in a few weeks' time going to a very interesting. Um, um, been invited at at Stanford on on existential risk a conference, and um, and these have never been higher so you're right there's the existential risks at the level of the individual at the family unit society countries governments and um, organizations and, and humanity and, itself as you pointed out yeah exactly so, so the stakes are high <laughs> the stakes are high so this 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 is all um, i'm all about listening and teaching people how to listen how important is listening in this work do you think so listening is is really um very important in in my sense for for several reasons, two, three reasons, just, just quickly as we wrap. I think, first of all, ultimately, this idea of, you know, you, you framed it spot on in terms of imagining what if and imagining alternatives <clears throat> is usually going to come from having diverse and, and broad perspective. And I'm not meaning to use it in an HR point of view. I'm, I'm literally meaning it. If you are to evaluate possible outcomes and things that are outside of the box, and you're just speaking to people who are kind of cabled in the same way, organizations that have been doing things in the same way, you're not going to kind of imagine the, the what if and those possibilities, again, in a neutral way, both for the existential risks, but also for the positive opportunities. So in that sense, it's very important. The second reason it's extremely important is if you think about what complexity is and that there are unknown unknowns, it means that it's emergent. And that is different from known unknowns where you're relying on experts like science and medicine and how to send a probe to Mars and how to cure certain diseases. That's magic, but it's understandable. You can rely on experts. There are known unknowns. When you move to unknown unknowns and completely emergent, you need a discovery process. And for that, it's trial and error. You need to take different perspectives, different approaches. By definition, you're not just copying a playbook. And so the listening allows you to pick up signals, ideas that you might not have that's more diverse. There's a lot of research by people like Scott Page, who's um, you know, a professor at Michigan University and on the board of Santa Fe Institute and others, literally showing that diversity in that sense is essential. And the only way to get diversity is if you listen to those voices, which might be divergent. Uh, it also strikes me, I mean, you... Uh, you talk about science fiction and the importance of science fiction. I mean, so there's there. It's a very interesting concept that you have that we we need to rely on the creatives who are imagining different futures that we can't even think about to help us think about what 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 are the what ifs and what could and we need to listen to them. Yeah, we're bringing the creative people in who we normally might not listen to and asking them questions and then listening to their answers and evaluating them seems to me to be part of this process that you're talking about 
Completely. And, you know, science fiction is often kind of used in a kind of um, stereotypical way as disruption is, right, in terms of, you know, either dystopian or just technology related. But fundamentally, it's really just, you know, taking a blank page and imagining discontinuity with what we know, right? And to your point, the creatives and the imagination and the what ifs, it's it's at, at so many different levels. As you point out, it's imagining different what ifs. So that's one level. It's also resolution of complex challenges for which we currently don't have straightforward answers. So whether it's creatives or different ways of thinking, um, take some of our most complex challenges for society, you know, fairness, equity, health, um, food security, um, climate, education. All of these clearly require modes which don't just rely on playbooks or the way things have been done or current experts. And so we need divergent perspectives, sometimes experimental, to help resolve and make effective these complex challenges, from education to climate to many others. And so whether it's creative and whether science fiction helps directly and indirectly, a lot of, you know, I just want to sort of mention this because people see the technology as just, you know, how do we get and invade Mars or whatever. The way of thinking, the way I like to think about it is really how do you effectively think of different possibilities, which include problem solving for our complex challenges for which, you know, we can't just rely on, on existing knowledge because of unknown, unknown and new situations. And because new situations, you, by definition, can't just do what you've always been doing because it's not yet effective or, or the answer. Fascinating. One more question. This is a personal question. What, what, is, what is one thing about yourself that if you didn't reveal it to us, we would never know it? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, okay. Um, despite my boring background of an investment banker, middle-aged, white male, um, even though I focus on slightly more esoteric things now, I have a deep fascination and my true love is actually philosophy and existentialist philosophy and Zen Buddhism. Interesting. Um, <laughs> and I can tell you why and how it connects to all of this if you want, both in a longer answer or a 30 second answer, or we'll leave it to, to the viewers to follow up on my work. Give us a quick 30 second answer. Connect, connect Zen Buddhism to uh, disruptive environments. Sure. Well, Zen Buddhism and disruptive environments, in fact, is huge, the connection, because basically the whole idea of uh, Shoshin is beginner's mind. So you're thinking differently and to your point, listening and different views. <laughs> Um, if you think about Mujo, it's impermanence. It's basically transience. It's it's disruption as a constant. Is you know is when you put your foot in the water, the Heraclitus. You know, you never put the foot in the same water twice. A because the water is moving and your foot is is moving. It's um, all these things, or wabi sabi, in terms of. Um, um, acceptance of transience and imperfection you know when you break the a vase or a bowl and it cracks and you put a leaf of gold and you reassemble it with wabi-sabi that is imperfect but it actually looks prettier often and nicer and then the common western perspective of perfection which again goes to um, novelty and, and doing things differently so i think zen buddhism in so many respects, and we can go on for hours, we have a chapter of that in our work in volume two, actually, 
I had a Zen Buddhist advisor who who helped because although I have a very strong interest, I'm not as knowledgeable as I would like. Um, but Zen Buddhism is a huge um, importance and a relationship with discontinuity and uh, appreciating disruption and adapting to change and that. Yeah, if I were to summarize, I would say that Zen Buddhism provides us with a model of a mindset that allows us to adapt the, adapt to the velocity of change that we're experiencing. Yeah. So much so that it's almost like it's not necessarily perceiving change as something abnormal or different. It's right. a, it's a constant. Yes, things change yes. constantly. It's transient. It's mujo. And the and the and the Buddhist mind allows us to manage that. Hundred percent. That impermanence. Yeah. No. Totally. Totally. It's uh, it's very well uh, framed. Interesting. Well, Roger, thank you so much. For, for this conversation. It's been one of the most interesting conversations I've had in quite a while. So I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Doug. And um, yeah, look forward to continuing uh, to exchange on these things. Doug Knoll here. Thank you so much for listening to Listening with Leaders. If you are a successful executive leader who would like to be on this program, please visit podcast.dougnoll.com slash podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you please share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on the social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag listening with leaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to my website, dougnoll.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. That's at Douglas E. Noel. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next show.